You know, while living in China, time and time again, I can't tell you how many times we ran into opposition. We met many Christians who had been harassed, they had been jailed, or maybe they'd just been intimidated to tone down or reject altogether their faith in the Lord. The interesting thing is that many times government officials found themselves regrettably quelling something that they didn't fully understand. And the reason why is that people in power at the local level have a very different agenda than people at the national level. At the national level, they're looking out for the country and the good of their people. But at the local level, you've got these local chieftains. And they're only concerned about one thing, staying in power, controlling any forces that might undermine their ability to be in charge. So consequently, through policy changes, top leaders would often inadvertently participate in stifling a movement that they know is actually in the best interest of their people. They did it by accident. They felt like they had no choice. In fact, in February, I planned to attend a conference of religious officials from China who were going to come and share how the American church can best serve the Chinese church in this day and time. So theirs is not an easy job. They're in a position where I've seen this so clearly where governments have nothing against religion in particular, but for political reasons, they'll, they'll kind of try to squelch religion and Christianity in particular. And so accidentally becoming pawns in the hands of the enemy, doing his will. You know, it's so easy for you and I to get crossways with God's purposes in this life. You know, a healthy focus on taking responsibility can quickly devolve into a preoccupation with self-preservation and self-promotion. You know what I'm talking about. We start off just wanting to be responsible adults, and then we can become obsessed with ourselves and taking care of ourselves and watching out for our health and taking care of our finances and making sure that we're positioned well for the present and the future. And in doing so, we can put ourselves in a bad position. As we'll see in the story today, a person appointed to serve the people was so obsessed with maintaining his position of power that he became a pawn of the enemy to oppose God. And as history teaches us, this is a pretty unsafe position to be in when you're opposing God. But the really scary thing for you and I today is that if we become consumed primarily with caring for ourselves, and that's not wrong in and of itself, but if we become consumed with ourselves and taking care of ourselves, we can also find ourselves unintentionally opposing God and His purposes and His will for our lives. You know, as we talked about last week, you know, in the first installment that God had a solution to the problem that was caused by man. God had a plan. That's the first point this morning. God had a plan. And as soon as He announced it, Satan began working overtime concocting schemes to thwart it. Throughout the Old Testament, his plans would take two basic forms. Number one, to undermine faith. Whatever he could do to undermine man's faith, he did that in chapter 3 of Genesis. Or number two, to eliminate threats. Just a few examples this morning. It starts in chapter 4. You know, God announced in chapter 3 that he was going to do something to deal decisively with sin. And in chapter 4, the enemy begins scheming and plotting. Cain and Abel. Cain's lack of faith and preoccupation with himself led him to murder faithful Abel. And no faithful descendants would mean no savior 
to crush the serpent's head. But because God had a plan, he provided Seth to take Cain's place. Leading up to the flood, man's lack of faith led to corruption, which threatened to infect all of mankind. And again, no faithful descendants would mean no savior. So God had to do something about it. In the story of Abraham and Sarah, the enemy changes tactics. You know, at that time, each race of people had their own God. And so when Abraham pretended that Sarah was his sister, the enemy used Pharaoh and then Abimelech to try to compromise Abraham's bloodline. Remember those stories? Abraham pretends that Sarah's his sister. She gets taken into the harem of two different kings. I guess he didn't learn his lesson the first time. And so God knew that if the bloodline was compromised, then their faith would be undermined and compromised. But God protected them because God had promised that through Abraham, Isaac, and eventually Jesus would be born. And then lastly, Pharaoh and the slaughter of the Hebrew children. You know, the enemy used Pharaoh to try and commit genocide. But as dedicated as the forces of evil, this is the second point, were to thwarting God's plan couldn't. He tried everything. Everything in the kitchen sink too. And it didn't work. He could not thwart God's plan. Satan was determined to oppose God and will continue to be frustrated until his time is at an end. Now this morning we're going to study briefly a story of how Herod, King Herod, joined in the party to try to thwart God's plan to bring salvation through Jesus. Herod was a ruthless man who went to great lengths to eliminate any threat. We talked about it this morning in Sunday school. He would even, you know, it would even jeopardize the lives of his own children. It's the, the saying was that it was better to be one of Herod's pigs than to be one of his children. Because there was a good chance you would lose your life in the process if you felt that you were a threat in any way. Turn to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to be covering verses 1 through 12 this morning. And we're going to see a really encouraging message for us today. Beginning in verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now the Magi are a really interesting group of people. I'm going to tell you some things about them this morning. So drawn by the star, this group of men, they were both religious leaders, history tells us, and they were political leaders. So they were powerful, and they were in tune with the gods. They were skilled in astronomy and astrology. They could read the stars. They had a sacrificial system that was very similar to the Jewish sacrificial system. They were especially noted for their ability to interpret dreams, which will come into play later in this story. And it is from their names that the word magic in magician come. Magic. So these were important people. They believed in the existence of only one god, They were prominent and powerful advisors in multiple successive dynasties. And as a result of the exile, you know, when God punished Israel or Judah and sent them off into exile, they came into contact with people like Daniel. And they would have been well acquainted with Judaism while in Babylon. And because of Daniel's high position, because at one point Daniel saved their lives. You remember that? You know, King Nebuchadnezzar said, tell me the meaning of my dream or you're toast. And Daniel told him the meaning of the dream, and then he pleaded for clemency for these officials, these magi, these magicians. So Daniel had great respect, and it's certain that the magi learned much from the prophet Daniel about the one true God, 
the God of Israel, and about his will and plans for his people through the coming glorious king. And because many Jews remained in Babylon after the exile and intermarried with the people of the east, it's likely that Jewish messianic influence remained strong in that region until New Testament times. And you know, when you think about God's plans, they don't happen overnight. A lot of times in our lives, we're frustrated that the way God works, it seems a bit like a winding road. But I believe this is why. Because while executing his plan that involved many nations and many peoples over time with many bends in the road, God's influence, his reputation spreads far and wide. And so that's why I believe that God's plan in our lives often seems like a winding road because the more bends in the road, the more opportunities for other people to get to know God. And so when you're in the middle of something challenging and you're like, God, I just want this to be over, keep this in mind. God's plan is often a winding road so that he can spread his reputation far and wide. A couple of years ago, we were gifted a wheelchair for a special needs child in China. And he needed the chair. And you know what? We Honestly, we could have sent money and somebody could have purchased it locally. But in the process, many different people had their hands on that wheelchair. And at many steps along the way, what happened was, was much more than just a little boy getting a wheelchair. Many people became aware of the need. They became aware that God was up to something. And... They got a chance to participate in what God was doing. And so we see that this is the way that God handles things. In passing through different hands, so many more people got involved than would have otherwise. And what I've shared so far also shows that God, even though God acts in and through nations, his plan has always been global. Verse 3. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all... Jerusalem with him. You know, this was the wrong thing to say to a guy like Herod. History tells us that he was a paranoid tyrant. He was always worried about somebody taking over his throne. In fact, he liked to refer to himself as the king of the Jews. And so here come these important, powerful people showing up on his doorstep saying, hey, we're looking for the king. And it ain't you. So he's upset. And the people of Jerusalem, who likely many had given up, Messiah? That's not happening. I don't think it's ever happened. So everybody's stirred up by the news. Verse 4. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. So we got an interesting situation here. Herod, seemingly a godless man, consults with the religious leaders. But the truth is he was likely a religious man. He probably went to the temple. Not necessarily the Jewish temple. He had his own gods. But he sought to leverage spiritual forces and institutions for his own benefit. Herod never asked the question when it came to his people or to the gods. He never asked, how can I serve you? Herod's mission in life was to ask the question, how can you serve me? How can I use you to make sure that I get what I need? But I would say, in addition to being contemptible, because he's not a really good guy. But I think Herod is also a tragic character. As I described with the Chinese government often, they find themselves at odds with something they don't understand. I think it's the same way with Herod. He had no idea. He, he didn't even understand what he was attempting 
to oppose. And that makes him a tragic character. Because not only would God outwit Herod, but his choice to openly oppose God would continue to cause grief for his family long into the future. In fact, it was his grandson, Herod Agrippa, who was standing before people in his flowing robes, and they said, this sounds like the voice of a god. And Herod did not give glory to God, and therefore God struck him down right there on the spot. So we see that Herod is this tragic character whose choice to unwittingly oppose God had effects in his family long into the future. So the question today is, how many of our friends and our loved ones unwittingly, accidentally oppose God? And if you ask them, what about God? They say, what about God? I've got nothing wrong with the man upstairs, but my life, it's about me. It's about taking care of myself. It's about getting what I need. It's about pursuing my dreams and my goals. And unwittingly, accidentally, inadvertently, they can find themselves crossways with God. And that's how it happens. And you know, though our friends and loved ones, they're not murderous people. They're not evil people like Herod. They're no less tragic in their pursuit of their own ends. You know, nothing scares me more than the thought of a wayward child. You know, when I think about my three kids, that God's entrusted me, that's the scariest thing I can consider, is that they would be heading off in the wrong direction. And many of you know what that's like. And I'm sure you could tell me stories of misguided ambition and good intentions. I mean, that, nobody sets out to mess up their own life, right? If you ask, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to screw up. That's what I want to be with my life. <laughs> I just want to make a big mess and, and make my mom and dad upset. Nobody wants that, but it's misguided ambition. It's good intentions, but poor choices that lead to sad outcomes. So the choice that you and I have to make is whether we're going to bathe ourselves in Scripture and fellowship with other believers in order to see through eyes of faith, as Stephen said this morning, or whether we're going to go the natural way of Herod and focus only on ourselves. And our needs. You know, Herod and the Magi both saw the same signs, but their responses, their different responses, are an important lesson for us today as we consider not just the birth of Jesus, but his continued availability today to be both our Savior and our Lord. So they had different responses. And this is the first different response we see in the story today. When confronted with clear evidence that God was at work, there was a star. I mean, hello, something's happening, something miraculous. They have a very different response. How does Herod respond? He asks, what about me? You know, there's something big happening. There's something unprecedented happening. But all he can ask himself is, what about me? What about my kingdom? What about my dynasty? Whereas the Magi, who are powerful men, and you know what? They might have even been kings themselves. It's very, you know, Herod was in a very small region. And so it's very likely that these men were, had bigger areas of responsibility than Herod did. That they were much more important than Herod was. But what did they ask? They didn't say, what about me? When they saw God at work, they said, what about you, Lord? What are you doing, Lord? I know you're up to something. How can I be involved? So look at the different response. Herod said, what about me? i got to watch out for myself. And the Magi, who were likely more important than Herod, said, What about you, Lord? How can I get involved? Verse 5. 
In Bethlehem and Judea they replied, For this is what the prophet has written, But you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. So they do what Herod asked. They confirm that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem of Judah. Verse 7. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. And you wonder at this point, how, do they really, are they buying this? I mean, the, the, the guy's a nut. But maybe they didn't know. So the question for me, though, at this point is, why didn't Herod make it a secret? Why did he pull him aside? Why did, why did he want to talk privately about this issue? Maybe he wanted to conceal the details of the report. He didn't want anybody to know the specifics. Maybe he wanted to conceal that he was sending them out on his behalf to do reconnaissance. Maybe he did not want to be perceived as believing in a coming Messiah and so legitimize their quest. Or maybe he didn't want the Jews to know that he planned to murder any threat to his power, even if it was the coming Messiah. So we see Herod was known for his cunning. In fact, Jesus later referred to his son Herod Antipas as a fox. But in a few moments, we're going to see how God himself revealed himself to the Magi in order to outfox the fox. And also here we find the second different response to God at work. Herod asked, how can I use you to get what I want? You know, Herod viewed people as nothing more than pawns to be utilized toward his own ends. Anybody ever felt like that? Maybe at work, maybe at school, maybe at home. Like you're just being, you're take, being taken advantage of, you're being used. What causes that? Well, with Herod, he could not think of anything other than his own self. And it caused him, when confronted with the fact that God was at work, in these magi, maybe who were important people, came to be with him. All he could think of was, here's my chance. I'll use them. I'll, I'll, I'll work through them. I'll get something done through them. And I don't want to have to do it myself. You know, work smarter, not harder, right? But look at, you know, how the Magi responded. Their response is so different. Themselves being men of prominence and power, their posture was to invite Herod. Come worship with us. They were so open. They were so respectful. They came into his court. They showed deference. Maybe they didn't even have to. And when Herod says, go find him and so I can come worship with you, they're like, okay, come on, let's go. So see where their focus was as they saw God at work. But ironically, Herod the devious, who was so calculating and cunning, would ultimately be memorialized as nothing more than a tyrannical pawn himself. He was so smart. He was so in the know. He was so devious and calculating. But in the end, he himself became just a pawn in a chess match between God and Satan. He was, just, he was a nobody who was used by the enemy because he made himself the focus. So the, here's the Magi. God is at work. Something important is happening. We don't even know who you are here, but come and join us. And look how different their response was. Verse 9. Verse 9. 
After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. So they followed the star to the home of Jesus' parents in Bethlehem. They were overjoyed when they realized their journey, possibly of years, had come to an end, and they were at their destination to the place where God had done something important. Verse 11. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. So upon encountering Jesus, they do the following three things. They bow down. Kind of an odd scene, right? They bow down to a baby, maybe a year or two old at this time. They worship him, and they gave him costly I want you to pay close attention to their response and how different it was to Herod. They bowed down, they worshipped him, and they gave costly gifts. And this is the third different response that we see this morning. Herod asked himself, what can I do to protect what's mine? Because it was all about him. And his choice was to eliminate or to plot to eliminate this potential threat. Does that sound familiar to what I talked about at the beginning? What were the enemy's tactics in the Old Testament? If he couldn't undermine somebody's faith, he would just seek to take them out. So that's what he's trying to do here. He was using a favorite strategy of our common enemy, which reveals that Herod's self-concern, which to us, it's not so bad, right? We're just looking out for ourselves. We're just making sure that we have what we need. It's not bad, but it can lead to making dangerous, treacherous choices that put us at odds with God. So it reveals that Herod's self-concern had led him to play for the wrong team. And not only the wrong team, but the losing team. When you oppose God, you will lose. So if you're on the losing team, you will lose and lose and lose. Self-concern is indeed a dangerous trap. That leads to treacherous, each of these treacherous responses by Herod to the undeniable fact that spiritual forces are at work. So let's protect ourselves and those we love. In contrast, though, we see the response of the Magi. They say, what can I give? How can I contribute? How can I get involved in what God is doing right now? And they prepared themselves and they invested possibly years their lives to doing just that. So God was at work and they said, what can I give? How can I get involved? How can I be a part of what God is doing right now? Verse 12, finally. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So they were warned in a dream. They took a different way home to conceal from Herod what they had discovered and where. And ultimately, Herod Despite his best efforts, he was so cunning, he was so smart, he had it all figured out. Even he could not thwart God's plan. He joined another long line of losers, people who tried their best to oppose God and lost. So my question for you today is, if you can't beat him, right, and they tried. I mean, the enemy tried so hard. He expended all of his efforts. If you can't beat God, why not join him? 
Why would we choose to unintentionally oppose God? You know, the Apostle Paul talked about how unpleasant it was for him to fight God. And the sad thing is, is that though grace removed his sin and his guilt, it could not remove the regret he felt over the many wasted years of his life that he spent opposing God while thinking that he was doing God's will. So what about you today? What is your posture in life? Are you and I a little bit like Herod when we think about decisions in life? What about me? What about me? Hey, what about me? Nobody else is looking out for me. I've got to look out for me. What can I do to protect mine? Huh? I've got to protect mine. I'm going to purchase a firearm. I'm going to buy insurance. I'm going to get locks. I'm going to pay for security. Because it's all about me. I've got to look out for number one. And how can I use you to get what I want? And, and we don't intend to be that way. But have you ever had a, an interaction with somebody at maybe a place of business and you weren't nearly as kind as you could have been? And it was a little bit too transactional. You just take the money, you know. I don't really want to talk to you. I don't really want to treat you like a person. This is, just, this is about me, huh? I mean, I'm pretty important, right? So are, are you and I a little bit like Herod? I know I am sometimes. What about me? What can I do to protect mine? How can I use you to get what I want? So let's be prayerful. And let's ask God to enable us to respond like the Magi. Focus on the Lord, huh? What about you, Lord, if, if, if in any and every situation we can ask ourselves that question? What about you, Lord? What, what are you doing in this situation, Lord? And then secondly, what can I give? How can I contribute? How can I get involved? So what are the ways in which God's uniquely gifted you to get involved and to make your contribution in this life? And then thirdly, encourage others in the Lord. That's what they were focused on. Come worship with us. This isn't about us. This is about God and what God is doing. And we're going to invite you to come with us and get involved. And I know I was talking to somebody this week who got emotional. Christmas is a time when people need encouragement. I mean, there's a lot of us that are looking forward to Christmas Day. And there's a lot of others of us that are not looking forward. And they could use a card. And they could use a call. And they could use a meal, they could use a gift, because there's people that are missing people on Christmas. There's people that have had a hard year. There's people that have lost people. And so let's be like the Magi. Focus on the Lord. Decide what you can give and encourage others in the Lord. You know, what if we would learn to focus on the Lord daily? We wake up asking that question, what about you, Lord? Not what about me. What about you, Lord? What if we spent time deciding how God has uniquely gifted and called us to contribute? What if we would choose to take every opportunity to encourage others in the Lord? Remember, the enemy wants to undermine your faith and eliminate you as a threat. So this is how you and I can resist him. When we choose to be focused, generous, and encouraging, we're aligning ourselves with the faithful and also, God ultimately will defeat the enemy. We've learned it from these passages this morning. The enemy has no chance. But we still have the opportunity to fight. We can fight. 
But our fight is not against flesh and blood. Our fight is not against hunger. It's not against poverty. It's not against sickness. You're in my fight today. It's against unbelief. Because that's where it all flows from. Our faith in God. And though our friends in society might paint belief as benign and unimportant, oh, that's nice. You believe. That's nice for you. I'm not interested. That's not for me. Scripture paints a different story. To God, faith is the priority. It is the pleasing aroma that he delights in. And if the enemy undermines our faith, he defeats us. But if our faith persists, and I'm praying that yours does, he has no other option than to try to take you out. And this is why, from a spiritual perspective, if everything's smooth sailing in your life, you might want to be a little concerned. Everything's great, everything's fine, everything's as it should be. Maybe you're not much of a threat. Maybe I'm not much of a threat. So be encouraged. If you're under attack, it's likely. And I know some of you had some really hard things this year. If you're under attack, it's because you're winning. And the enemy is scared. And he has no other option. He can't win by undermining your faith because you're going to stick it out. You're going to continue to trust God. You're going to continue to call on the Lord, even when friends and family would tell you to give up on that. Like Job's wife said, give up on that. It's done. Quit. But you're not going to quit. And so the enemy has no other choice but to make it hard for you. So be encouraged if you're under attack. And be encouraged by Jesus' words. He says, in this world, you will have trouble. It's promise. But I have overcome the world. Pray with me. God, thank you so much for this message. And we're so encouraged for as we consider that the enemy threw everything he had at you. He, he enlisted people. He enlisted powerful people. He plotted. He schemed. He murdered. He pillaged. Anything he could do to undermine faith and to eliminate threats. But in the end, Lord, you won. And you're still winning. And that if we are willing to continue to put our faith and trust in the Savior that was born on Christmas Day and what was accomplished on our behalf at the cross and the resurrection, that we have a reward waiting for us. Lord, we have hope and we have a future. And God, the enemy is so angry that we believe. He's going to try everything he can for each of my friends in this room to get them to doubt to get them to be discouraged, Lord, to get them to give up and throw in the towel so that he doesn't have to worry about us anymore. But I pray, God, that we would be like the Magi, that we would ask ourselves the question daily, what about you, Lord? How can I give and get involved? And how can I invite other people to worship with me so that we can make ourselves a very uh, important target for the enemy? And then that you would give us the strength and the ability to persevere through hard things, Lord, so that we can... Hit that finish line and be uh, re released and, and be relieved that we have kept the faith. That we have not denied the name of the one who loved us first and loved us best and loves us forever. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name I pray.